0: Hebrews chapter 5. Thank you, Bethany, for the lovely piano music. And thank you so much for that song just now. We want to tell you that if uh, any of you have children under the age of 10 who would like to go to a children's church, that we do provide that upstairs. You can take your children to the back at this time, and they'll go upstairs for that class. It is uh, really a part of our family-integrated philosophy to provide that service, because we know some come in that aren't used to having their children in the service, and they need a little bit of help to start off with, and we want to give that help, and it also provides an opportunity for our church people to have a teaching opportunity, especially for our young people to learn to teach others and teach the Word of God. So I encourage you, if you need to do so, to use that service today. My, oh my, what lovely grandchildren we have in this church, huh? Those three young ladies looked a lot like their grandmother, I thought, cute as a button. And I thank you so much for that lovely song this morning. As we come back to Hebrews this morning, I I feel like I need to remind you of this again because it is so critically important in understanding this book. The book of Hebrews was written in a very, very unusual time period. It was written in a time period between the death and resurrection of Christ around 30 AD and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And this was a unique time because God had an overlap of two programs that coexisted during this time, one being transitioned or left behind, and the other being new and calling people forth to a new, deeper relationship to God through Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is that during those, what, 40 years between the death and resurrection of Christ and uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, there existed the Old Testament Jewish worship system with the temple and all the trappings that go with it. And on the other hand, God was founding his church on the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after the resurrection. And the church was God's new program. And the old program, the old covenant, had been laid aside. And now there was a new covenant in the blood of Christ which lifted men's eyes upward to a heavenly high priest who was the fulfillment of the earthly high priest that now would pass away. It was a very, very difficult time. Jewish people who were faithful, loving people who loved the Lord and served the Lord were faithful in the Old Testament worship system, had offered up sacrifices, had fellowshiped, had set under the teaching of Judaism, now converted to Christ and left all that and came to a faith which was unseen, looking for treasures in heaven, looking to a priest who was in heaven, and not visible any longer. It was a tremendous pressure on those new-believing Jewish people. And many of them, though truly believers, were turning back to the old ways. They were entrapped in the old ways. It was a unique period because after 70 A.D., the temple was torn down, and the Jewish religious system, which had been there for so many years, was destroyed and would never come back until the kingdom comes. That was hard for the Jewish people, especially believing Jews. Here were believing Jews who had seen the temple now, though it be through a heathen by the name of Herod, nonetheless, a temple which was beautifully architectured and built there in Jerusalem for the worship and offering of sacrifices. And it wasn't even completed yet, we're told, in the time of Christ. There was still construction going on to finish this beautiful temple. And the Jewish believers must have thought, here is a wonderful temple. Here is the place where Messiah can return and reign on this earth. And then to find one day that they needed to walk away from that temple, from that system of worship. One, one writer put it like this. No part of Mosaic economy had taken a stronger hold on the imaginations and affections of Jews than the Aaronical high priesthood and that system of ritual worship over which its occupants presided. The book of Hebrews was written, among other things, to tell the Jewish people that the high priest Christ who now sat at the right hand of the Father was far superior to the earthly high priest who was merely a shadow of that which was to come. And so the entire book of Hebrews, especially the early parts here, are directed toward addressing the issue that Jesus Christ is superior to all the other uh, forms that forms of uh, message that God had sent throughout history. For example, just to review us a little bit, we go back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And we find there that it's taught that Jesus was greater than the prophets. I love verse 3. I love verse 3. Look at verse 3, which describes our Lord. Who being the brightness of his glory, the Father's glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, by himself, sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. What a tremendous Savior. What a tremendous high priest. Well, then we went on to chapter 1, verses 4 to 18. We find out that Jesus Christ is greater than angels. There were certain segments of culture and society that day that worshipped angels. We have that around yet today. There is, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, the teaching that Christ is superior to Moses. You remember when we talked about that some time ago, we pointed out that Moses was highly, highly revered, almost worshipped in some cases in the Old Testament system. He had had tremendous privileges. Well, I won't preach that message again. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 4, 14. Over Joshua and the rest that Joshua had promised, Jesus and the rest that he promised was far superior to that which was to come through Joshua, which was merely a land that they would occupy. And then finally in chapter 4, verses 14 to 10, or 14 and following, over the high priest, of the earthly temple. Picking up our narrative again, no part of the Mosaic economy had taken a stronger hold on the imaginations and affections of the Jews than the ironical high priesthood and that system of ritual worship over which its occupants presided. The gorgeous apparel, the solemn vesture, the mysterious sacredness of the high priest, the grandeur. Of the temple in which he ministered and the imposing splendor of the religious rites which he performed all these operated like a charm in riveting the attachment of the Jews to the now outdated economy and in an exciting powerful prejudices against that simple spiritual unostentatious system by which it had been superseded namely the church, that met in small groups, not large crowds, in homes, not the temple, to worship the Lord and study his word, not to mention the fact that there were letters coming from his apostles various times throughout their lives that reformed and clarified their thinking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you would have gone to a Jew in that day, and ask him about religion and God and and he were to challenge you, he might have asked you this. Among the first things that you might have asked another person about religion was, who is your high priest? Who mediates between you and God? Who offers sacrifices to atone for your sins? The Christian's answer was, Jesus, who is far more able to intercede for us, having lived on earth, and now, at the right hand of the Father, then your priest whom you see. In fact, the writer of Hebrews has encouraged these believers, these true believers, who were looking back to the old system and many returning to the old system. He admonished them in our previous transitional section here in chapter four, verses 13, 14, in two different ways. Number one, he said to them, "Let us hold fast our profession." That was their position, their position in Christ. Let us hold fast our profession. When you are tempted to go back and become entrapped in the old ways, remember your profession, your profession of faith to Jesus Christ that put you in a unique relationship with him, that far exceeded the seen things of the temple for the unseen things at the right hand of the Father in heaven, a Savior who interceded on the throne of God for you. And then secondly, there came this invitation. Come boldly unto the throne of grace, not to an earthly temple, but to a heavenly temple. Yes, an earthly temple that's beautiful and gorgeous and and captivating, but no, a greater place, you can't see it, but in heaven, where there is a Savior who will meet your needs in a time of need. I appreciated what Brother Hicks said a minute ago. You know, uh, I I noticed as I went through my notes, I thought through what he was saying there about a lot of this service being about our need for the Lord. The little song the girls sang, the song that we sang in my message. Uh, You know, the whole service on Sunday morning is is a valuable thing because uh, it's all preparation for the ministry of the Word the special music, the recitation of Scripture, all those things help to prepare us for the opening of God's Word. And it's amazing how sometimes God in His providence directs those things. But Christianity offered a far greater privilege, a far greater experience, but it was based on faith in an unseen reality. Historically seen, but contemporaneously unseen. Which brings us to this question. Where is your focus in the Christian life? Is it on the seen or the unseen? You know, I uh, have set where you sat a lot, a lot more lately than in years gone by. But, you know, a lot of times I'm listening to the preacher, but... The Lord shows me applications that I see in the scriptures myself that He's not even talking about. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes, and then sometimes He he gives me applications. And, And in a text of 10 verses, you can't imagine how many different things you could learn from those 10 verses. So today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm not going to wait until the end of the service to make some of the applications and draw some of the invitation of our message. I want to pause in the midst of it and just point out to you some of the applications that are here and pause for a moment of prayer and self examination as we think on these things. The first one is right here. And of course, the theme of the whole book, if we should take all 10 verses, the theme of the 10 verses is that Jesus Christ as the high priest is far superior to the earthly high priest or any other. In any you know, other institu- institution or person that you would put in his place, but the issue here for us is, what is the focus of our Christian faith? Is it the material or is it the immaterial? There are a lot of perversions around today of the Old Testament system that people are still entrapped in. Uh, we know from some of us who maybe have come out of that background, but Roman Catholicism's priesthood is a perversion of the Old Testament legitimate priesthood that's been brought over into the new era. Now, I, I, I don't think there's probably anyone here that is depending upon an earthly priest in such a way, but that is a, that is an example of even today, people looking to a visible, glorious a priest in a beautiful, beautiful, cathedral to whom they confess their sins no no the high priest is in heaven Amen. and also we think of uh, some who may be almost neglected like Baptist use our own name there some of us some of us are so occupied with the idea that Jesus is king and he is king disregarding uh, emphasis is equal in Scripture during this time period, during this church age, that Jesus is the intercessor. He's the redeemer. He is the high priest making intercession for us at the right hand of God the Father in heaven continually. Uh, actually, this age is has a purpose of, of trying to com- convince and show us that Jesus Christ is the high priest. He is the priest. The kingdom which is coming will show us that he is the king. And his ministry on earth in the past tells us he is a prophet. So in these different eras of time, we have prophet, priest, king, which in eternity future will all come together in one person, which is the Savior Jesus Christ. But in these different ages through which people live, there's an emphasis, prophet, priest, king. And today... Though he is every so much king, the emphasis is on his priesthood. The whole book of Hebrews devotes a tremendous amount of time to that particular discussion. You know, he is the high priest in heaven, interceding for us but unseen. Where are you putting your attention? There are people today in all circles of churches and lives who are not putting their trust and emphasis in this high priest who is the legitimate intermediary between God and men, but they're putting faith in some substitute. Maybe it's a particular teacher that they elevate so highly that he has more influence in their life than the Lord Jesus through the scriptures. Maybe it's a creed. Maybe it's an organization Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a circle of peers who have more influence on you than does the Lord in heaven. Change is hard. A lot of us have grown up in Christian homes and and so we haven't seen some of the radical change like was demonstrated here for the Jewish people. And yet that's a bit of a deceiver sometimes because sometimes, based on what's going on inside our lives as opposed to what we look like when we come to church on the outside of our lives, there really does need to be some changing going on very radically. Jesus is the high priest, he's the one who can change those things. The saved Jews were entrapped in the old ways, many of them. Many of us are perhaps entrapped in old ways that we've carried over. So what I'd like to do is, I would like to have you bow your heads and close your eyes and just examine yourself. Think about what I've told you. Think about the circumstances that these people face, and don't let the silence bother you. There's not going to be any music, just silence. Don't let the silence bother you, but just for a moment or so, would you meditate on that with me, please? Lord, move in our lives. Show us where we're entangled and trapped in old ways and help us to give them up based on the power that is in the person of Christ as we shall see him now as high priest. In Jesus' name, amen. Returning now to our text, I'd have you take your Bibles and look with me at the scriptures. We're going to talk about five qualifications or requirements for a priest and they're found in chapter 5 verses 1 through 4. Almost all commentators agree that these are qualifications for the priest but they break them down in different ways. Some 3, some 4, some 5. Being the detailed person I am, of course I have the most, (laughs) 5. I'm in the 5 camp. And so I want you to look at those with me just so you can see them in the text. That's one of the reasons you don't have an outline. Look at chapter 5 verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. Okay, so the first thing here is that he must be from the human race. He is taken from among men. Anthropos, men, the human race. And is ordained for men. He is a man. He is a male in his person, his his birth sex, birth gender. Number one. Number two... It says here, is ordained for men. So number two, he has to be ordained. Number three, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So number three is that he must offer up both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Number four, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Number four, he must be compassionate and sympathetic and number five and by reason hereof he ought as for the people so also himself to offer up sins which is part of the end of chapter chapter 5 verse 1 offering up gifts and sacrifices number four and no man taketh his honor unto himself but he that is called of God as was Aaron so he has to be called of God so we have these five qualifications he must be from the human race and be a man He must be ordained. He must offer up both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He must be compassionate and sympathetic. He must be called of God. Now, when we pick up in verses 5 through 10, we have the information that tells us that in all these different categories, Christ is superior to the earthly high priest. He not only meets the qualifications of the earthly high priest in verses 1 to 4, But he is greater in fulfilling those qualifications. In other words, the high priest Christ is far exceedingly greater than the earthly high priest that people were turning back to. Now these, uh, unfortunately, these uh, comparisons aren't just in the same order and so forth. They're kind of here and there. So we'll look at those as as we go through. First of all. He must be from the human race and be a man to serve men, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men. He uh, has the word here, anthropos, which means from mankind. He must be a member of the human race. And, And it says here clearly that he is a man. You know, today liberals want to produce a gender-neutral Bible. It seems that everyone can select their own gender preference except, of course, God. Because God has chosen his gender preference. He is a male. Now, any theological student knows that God is spirit, and spirits are either female or male. They're spirits, okay? But when God chose to manifest himself himself As the triune God to human men, he made himself a male person, three male persons. In fact, one of the proofs that the Holy Spirit is fully a person of the the Godhead is the fact, listen up all you Greek students, is the fact that though he is neuter, the word spirit is neuter in the Greek, uh, it is always handled with a personal masculine pronoun. He, not it. The Bible clearly presents the fact that when God revealed himself to men, though he was without sexual orientation, although he was that's the wrong word, though he was without any designation, uh, his spirit, yet he chose to reveal himself in the masculine form. And if that's what God wants, that's what I want. And one of the things that drives me wild that happened to me once, I visited an old Sunday school class in my childhood, and and they were endorsing this kind of thinking, and I could hardly stay in my seat. I looked like I had Parkinson's disease 20 years before I got it. I mean, it was really bad. (laughs) No, he's got to be a part of the human race, and he's a man. His humanity is insisted upon. Animal sacrifice is not sufficient. It will, it will atone for the moment, but it won't purge the conscience. We're going to talk more about that as time goes by. It can't be an angel. You know, angels are spirit beings. And a spirit can never die. Did you know that? God is spirit. Of course, God is eternal, both past and future. Angels are eternal from their creation at the dawn of the earth, forever into the future. They're not eternal in, back in history, but they're forever, is the word used, forever in the future. They will never die. In, G- in uh, Revelation chapter 12, when Satan was cast down from heaven, a number of uh, righteous angels were cast down with him and were condemned and remain condemned to this day. They are lost. There is no redemptive program for them, but they are spirits, and they all will live forever, but some of them in the lake of fire, and some of them in heaven, praise ye God. No, Jesus had to become a man. He had to become a man in order to die on the cross. He had to become a part of humanity in order to die on the cross. Be with us this afternoon. We have communion. We're going to talk about death and the aspect of God becoming man to die on the cross. I think it would be very edifying for you. I encourage you to be here this afternoon for our communion service. But Jesus died for you. He became a man so he could die for you. It's so clear. First John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big word that means satisfaction. He satisfies the penalties that we need to pay for our sins. And not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. He died for the whole world. You can go to anyone you see across the street or down the way and say, Jesus died for you, God loves you. Not if you're among the elect, Jesus died for you and God loves you, but Jesus died for you and he loves you right now. He's calling you to be among the elect. Hear his invitation, accept him, trust in him, believe in him. Romans 5, 6, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. I've come to a tremendous new new, new, new understanding of this phrase, without strength. I look pretty good up here today, don't I? I'm a, probably over-medicated or something. <laughs> but there are other times when I can barely get one foot in front of the other. Some of you see me that way. Late Sunday afternoon around the church here, stumbling around from post to post. Oh, thank God that he died for us when we were yet without strength. Because if he would have waited till we had enough strength to be morally what we ought to be, we never would have got saved because we don't have it in our own power. But he came and died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And listen to this, Romans ten nine. for if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You can be saved now, immediately, by putting your trust in Christ. In our apologetics class, we're studying rationalism versus presuppositionalism. Wow, that sounds like an earful, doesn't it? It's very quite simple. The rationalist believes that when you witness to someone, you need to clear their doubts about all the things in the Bible they have questions about. If they have a question about how great fish swallowed Jonah, then you need to give them a reasonable explanation. If they have a question about how Moses split the Red Sea, then you need to come up with a reasonable explanation. And then when you've done that, you can witness to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. A presuppositionalist, on the other hand, says, There is no way you can answer all of a skeptic unbeliever's questions. He will question you to death. And besides that, he's though he's a rationalist, he's not rational. Because no man can interpret the evidence clearly and impartially because he's caught in the bubble of what? Human depravity. He does not have the ability to interpret the evidence correctly because he's lost in a world of depravity. The only way you can reach him is to break through that world of depravity to his heart. And the only one that can do that is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so the presuppositionalist says, this is the living word. It's self-authenticating. I don't have to prove it. I give it to you. Here it is. You go into a cave and are lost in the dark. And someone comes along with a flashlight and lights up the cave. It's not a discussion of what kind of batteries it has or how many lumen it is. You just follow that light out of the cave, right? That's the way the Bible is. It's like a light turned on in a cave. It's self-authenticating. When the light comes on, boy, you follow it. That's presuppositional. That means that you can witness to someone today and they be saved. In fact, you need to. He's analyzing in our class right at the current time, last week and this week, an article by Edward J. Carnell written back in the 1960s, which is a presentation in defense of rationalism and how you apply rationalism to evangelism. And after he gets done going through pages and pages and pages, which Dr. Wickham carefully dissects, of arguments of how you handle a semi-rationalist, how you handle an atheist, how you handle an agnostic, and so forth and so on. He finally says in the last paragraph, or nearly the last paragraph is his paper, this, he makes a statement. The thing is, a fool in five minutes can ask you more questions than you can answer in a lifetime. That's pretty indicting about rationalism. It's true in five minutes so you'll never get to the point of giving him the gospel no now is the day of salvation today is the day of salvation you don't have to wait till the end of your life and hope you convince him enough things to get him to convert you can tell him now and he needs to listen and open the word of God and be saved now today if you're here today and you're not saved you need to be saved today there's no excuse before God the gospel having been presented, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. And so I ask you again to bow your heads and pray and examine yourself. Are you saved? Have you received this Savior? Are you looking to that one in heaven who's interceding for you? Again, some of us have been in church. Some of you young people, children, have been in church a long time. You look great. You dress great. You act great most of the time. And it's wonderful, but are you inside all that you present yourself to be outside? Shall we bow our heads? And May I ask each one of us just to, just to, just to, to evaluate our faith? Is it real? Father, thank you for a word is truly a light in the darkness, and it tells us that the way of salvation is to, convic- to con- con- confess our desperate need and cry out to you that your shed blood might be applied to our lives, for forgiveness of sins and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Help us to examine ourselves honestly and sincerely in this matter, and not let this day end until we have reconciled with you by simply accepting the gift you've given in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it says here that he must have a nature and feel our feelings. The priest must be a man. He must be completely involved in the human situation. He must be bound up with men in the bundle of life. He must live with them and feel with them and know their heights and their depths. Excuse me, but we no more and get done with one application, here comes another one. Last week, I was clearing some files. Boy, I have a tremendous number of files that need to be cleared. And uh, I ran across a, a, about three or four-sheet document It was labeled Thoughts on Fellowship, August 2003. Does that date mean anything to any of you? Well, that was two months before I accepted the call as pastor at Fellowship Baptist Church. And I was thinking about what the Lord would have me to do if I came here as pastor. And one of the things that he had impressed upon my heart and I, I don't know that I fulfilled this as I should have. We need to teach fathers to be the head of their homes. We need to encourage fathers to be active in their homes. The church cannot make up for what a father does in the home. Our church cannot be strong unless it has strong families. And you say, well, what has that got to do with anything here? Well, listen, think about this a minute. Think think more deeply. There wasn't always a high priest, you know. The high priest only came about with the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20. That was in 1445 B.C. about. So there are hundreds of years before that when there was no priest or was there. In the book of Job, we read about a man... And Job, you understand, was probably written about the time of Abraham. That's right around 2100 B.C. And this is how he's described in Job chapter 1, verse 5. And it was so, when the days of their feasting, that's Job's children, were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said... It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. This is in what we call the patriarchal era. The era when there were patriarchs. There were men who were patri, man, arcs, rulers, man rulers that ruled within their own families. They were the prophet, priest, and king of their own families. And God used them that way. And We need to realize today that God still wants to use us as fathers that way. Until your child comes to know the great high priest who's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he is looking at you as if you were him. That's deep thought. He's looking at you, Dad, as though you were him because until he comes to know him, He's going to look to you. So what do you think he thinks about Jesus today? He thinks what he sees in you, Dad. I appreciated Brother Eisner's class this morning, but I disagree with you on one thing. This is really a big point, really big point. I doubt if your dad showed you how to button your shirt. (laughs) He was talking about things that his father had taught him as he prepared for Bar Mitzvah, as you call it, at age 12. You know, at, at age 12, Jesus wasn't so sharp between all those prophets just because he was Jesus. I mean, Brother Rice recognized a very important truth here that he'd had some training. Jesus grew up, he grew in knowledge and, and so forth, in favor, was knowledge and favor of men. I, I, it's hard to comprehend. But Jesus gave up the independent exercise of his omniscience during his life and only exercised that omniscience when God led him or gave him permission to do so. And the rest of the time, he was on his own. Granted, no sin nature must have amazing IQ. (laughs) But he prepared for that time. I think, Brother Reisinger, that he figured that out by just watching what his parents did when they buttoned his shirt for him. Oh, yeah, there are other things. I don't think he learned to tie his necktie. Necktie. Jesus wore a necktie. He, well, anyway. Some things you, you're taught by your parents. Some things you just pick up from your parents. Wow. You mean I think a certain way and it's almost like he can read my mind because he lives with me day in and day out and he knows what I think and act even though he can't know what I think and I don't even say and tell him what I really think and yet he figures it out and, Scary, unless you know the Savior. Dad, today, represents God before the eyes of his children, especially in the small ones, until they are saved and get to know God personally. That has always been a goal at this church, not to over-program you. We don't have programs on Saturday morning. We don't have programs deacon meetings throughout the week. We try to, I know it's a sacrifice for those men on Sunday too because they don't get home very early. But we try to keep our activities condensed so you can have a home life. I think sometimes in this church we've taken it for granted that we're trying to do that because we've forgotten what it was like to be in a church that run, 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 My wife reminds me of that sometimes. Don't you remember? Don't you remember how with 10 kids we did this and this and this and this and this? this? Don't you remember? I'd like for us just to pause again. This time I'll lead in prayer and ask God to teach us concerning how we represent God as fathers. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this Inside this instruction, this warning of how important it is that we be right inside and outside before our children Lord I know it's so hard we have large families loss of responsibility, illness struggles at work time over which we have no control but Lord Help us to keep our focus on you and to keep coming back. Keep working at it. Keep pressing on. Lord, that you might be able to do a work in our lives and our children our wives. In Jesus' name, amen. Some more things I want to say there, but... Uh, Unlike what Brother Reisinger thinks, I can't talk as long as I really want to either. (laughs) Okay. He must be from the human race and be a man to serve men, but Jesus is superior in his humanity and manhood. Chapter 5, verse 7. Isn't it good to know this 5 to 12 and we're still in the first point? Okay, chapter 5, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Jesus, now these things we've been talking about up until this point here have just been qualifications of any high priest. Now now we're going to look at the verses that follow in the latter section to show why Jesus was higher than superior to the human high high priest. And he was superior in his, his humanity by what he had given up and what he had taken on. I suggest to you that Jesus Christ, in doing the work of the high priest, gave up an incomparable amount compared to what the earthly high priest gave up. And, and, took on a responsibility that was immeasurably greater than any human high priest took on. Jesus left the glories of heaven. Turn your Bibles to John 17. Brother Reisner may mention of this this morning too, this chapter. This is Christ's high priestly prayer, okay? A prayer of intercession. And he says, verse 5 of chapter 17, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus is about to go through the most horrific thing any man or God could ever imagine. He's thinking about the glory. The glory he had with the Father before he became incarnate to become the high priest. He gave up an awful lot. And he also, he also took on an awful lot. One writer writes about his life, says the Lord felt the weakness of the flesh in his whole vicarious work. And though personally spotless, was in virtue of taking our place, subjected to all that we are heir to. We do not indeed find in him personal consequences of sin, such as sickness and disease, but the consequences which could competently fall to the sinless substitute. For he never was in Adam's covenant, we'll talk about that this afternoon, but was himself the last Adam. He had to fulfill the covenant As he took flesh for an official purpose, he submitted to the consequences following in the train of sin-bearing, hunger and thirst, fatigue and the sweat of his brow, persecution and injustice, arrests and sufferings, wounds and death. But Jesus gave up his glorified heavenly state at the right hand of God to experience the days of his flesh is the way it's described here. Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers. Hebrews 1, 8 says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, a scepter of thy kingdom. It was a state of humiliation when he was here on earth. But in order to experience manhood and thereby become the high priest, he had to become a man fully man, he gave up a tremendous amount and he committed himself even more. But Jesus in his superior in humanity for what he had given up, what he had taken on, raises the question, what have you given up? What have you given up? And what have you or are you willing to take on? Just think for a moment. (laughs) If you can picture Jesus, based on what we know from our Bible in various heavenly scenes, in the great glory he was with his father in the past, and then picture him in his humility. It's a contrast that we can meditate on our whole lives and never grasp. He gave up so much in order to be able to do so much What have we given up? Have we really given up anything which represents the sacrifice in view of what we have? What are we willing to take on? We sing a song, All I really need is Jesus. Take your songbooks and turn to number 36. Lincoln, we're going to use this as our invitation hymn. I told him to pick one out, but I'm going to reverse my instruction here. I, I always loved this song. I love it. God has given me so much. I don't feel like I've given up hardly anything for him. Especially when I think of these people. I think it's in Peter somewhere that... Uh, He says to pray for the persecuted. The persecuted church as if they were your own self. Something like that. And I look at this song, and I remember the scene in the movie where they were all out in the woods in the winter having a church service. And they're perfectly content. Sometimes... You don't appreciate giving up a little until you've given up all. On the earth the pleasures, Lord be thine. Glorified, we leave our coats behind. Thou art God, O Christ, in me. All I ever need is found in thee. Thou art God, O Christ, in me. All I never need is found in thee. You can't, by the way... Don't ever sing this song without singing all four verses. Not for self is given to us this peace, or of earthly pleasures to increase. This my soul delights to sing. All I ever need is found in thee. This my soul delights to sing. All I ever need is found in thee. Christ, revealed by his eternal love, has blessed us with greater joys above. This my song shall ever be. All I ever need is found in thee. This my song shall ever be. All I ever need is found in thee. In thy strength, O Lord, may I abide. Thou hast pledged to err be by my side. Thou will give the victory. All I ever need is found in thee. Thou wilt give the victory. All I ever need is found in thee. Bow your heads with me as we close. Lord, I pray your dear spirit would convict us today of those things we need to change in our lives, things that have entrapped us, either because of our mediocrity or because of our carelessness or because of our neglect of your word. Speak to each one of us, Lord, according to our individual needs. We know you can do that. You can talk to each one of us individually about our individual needs that are different from everybody else in this congregation and yet be talking to each one of us at the same time as intimately and as personally as if we were the only person in the universe. We pray for you to do that today and to bring your children to points of reformation, repentance, decision, that we might be better servants of yours. In Jesus' name, amen.